Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 26, 1 Kings chapters 15 and 16. Well, in our last lesson in 1 Kings, we ended by focusing on the meaning of the word wholehearted, Lebab Shalem, as used in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 3. And there the scriptural complaint is that this newest king over Judah, Avyam, also called Aviah, was just like his predecessor and father Rehavam, Rehoboam in that he was not wholehearted towards Jehovah and this was unlike King David who is described as wholehearted. Now we spent some time with this because it didn't take much reading on the resume of King David's life before we see this damning list of some of the worst possible sins a human can commit against another human. Sexual immorality and murder. So how is it that despite all these grievous trespasses and the consequential divine punishments that were promised to him, that David is seen by the Lord as wholehearted towards him? And the answer seems to be that God's definition of wholehearted revolves around the lack of idolatry in one's heart and in one's actions. That David did things that even in our day and age might earn him the death sentence. These were things that were violations of commandments that regarded human to human interaction. Idolatry, on the other hand, is a direct human to God interaction. And the implication is that idolatry is the Old Testament name for the so-called unforgivable sin that in the New Testament is called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now we're not going to review today all that we discussed in the last lesson in this regard, but suffice it to say that while Christianity has struggled mightily with defining blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, so did the ancient Hebrews struggle with defining idolatry. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it so much and then expressed shock when accused of it by God's prophets. It must be, however, that even if we can't fully define it, we know that in some particular way, this sin is so serious as to cause the Lord to doom the idolater who has crossed over some divinely defined line over into eternal death. Thus, we're going to approach this matter of idolatry from another angle today. In modern church speak, Idolatry is usually said to mean anything that a believer puts ahead of God in importance. And then countless sermons are spoken, usually centered on our wallets and our income. All right, with the suggestion that we've made 
our money or our job that idolatrous God. And while I can see in some respects the good intent of such a suggestion and its application, it's really but hyperbole and allegory. And it doesn't match with the biblical definition and examples of idolatry. Thus, while sounding satisfying, such a dubious definition kind of leads us away from the actual spiritual truth and reality of it. Throughout the Bible, idolatry was visibly and tangibly expressed as the overt worshipping of idols and images. And particularly those idols and images of named gods and goddesses who were obviously not Jehovah. Idolatry was not accidental. Such outward expressions must necessarily begin with a conscious decision of the human mind and soul to redefine just who God is. And thus to reject in part or in whole what the Torah and all the Holy Scriptures say that He is. In other words, if the Scriptures say that God is one, God is Echad, and that there are no other gods, and that God is not human-like, He's not animal-like, then to worship an idol of another god or to make an image of a golden calf or a bull or any other creature is to declare that God is either wrong or he's not telling the truth. Or perhaps another option is a belief that the Holy Scriptures are incorrect in their pronouncements of God's inherent attributes. Now generally speaking, in modern Judeo-Christian societies, even in modern Western secular societies, we don't see people running around making and buying and worshipping little, little idols and false gods. I mean, I've never witnessed a Christian or a Jew or even an enlightened secular person have a shrine to a false god or have a shelf full of idols and images of false gods to whom they burn incense or pray to as superior beings. That seems to be a, a relic of the ancient past. Maybe it belongs to some primitive voodoo culture and in some of the oriental religions of the Far East. So does that mean that idolatry is just a thing of the past? within Judeo-Christianity and therefore likely none of us would ever be tempted to commit it anyway. In my opinion, idolatry is alive and well among Jews and Christians. It's only that we outwardly express it differently in modern times than the way we usually see it in the cultures of the Bible. And since the source of idolatry is formed by a determination of our minds and our souls to redefine God, then whenever we pick and choose those characteristics and purposes of Jehovah that are attractive to us, and we reject all the others of His attributes, of His purposes, that's a form of idolatry as surely as if we set up an Asherah and prayed to it. And it happens today for the same reason it happened to those ancient Israelites. We do this so that we can have a God who better serves us. 
who God, a God that by, by defining Him in that way helps us fit in better with our local society. So we worship a God of our own making. We worship the one we want rather than the one who is. And when we worship, whoever it is we worship, what else is it that we are worshiping in our minds and hearts other than the characteristics that we attribute to that being? The attributes of a God define that God for us. Therefore, I can't assign to the God of the Bible the attributes of Buddha or of Allah and then expect the God of the Bible to see my worship as acceptable to Him or even as pertaining to Him. It is the scripturally declared attributes of Yehovah who makes him, that makes Him who He is. Intentionally dismiss some of His attributes. Add some that aren't there. You no longer have Yehovah. You have some other God. Some false God. It doesn't matter what we might think to call Him. So for instance, if we think in our worship that God's greatest purpose in His relationship with His people is to fulfill all of our human dreams and goals, that's idolatry. That's not because that's not what the Bible says about Him. If we think in our worship that God has become our buddy instead of our Creator, instead of our King and our Redeemer, that's idolatry for the same reason. If we make God merely a superhuman instead of an entirely separate and unique being that's far above, far unlike any other being, that's idolatry. If we make God to only be vengeful and wrathful, that's idolatry because we refuse to acknowledge His other attributes. If we make God to be only love and mercy, that's idolatry for the same reason. If we make God to be only a God of war or only a God of peace, that's idolatry. When taken as a body of work, we see in King David's many psalms his balanced and his insightful understanding of Jehovah that he's all of those attributes I just mentioned and far more. David tells us that God is severe and he's kind. God will destroy and he will save. God will forgive whom he will and he will not forgive whom he will not. God will punish. God will reward. God will curse. He will bless. God is the creator of all things, not the substance of all things. And most importantly, God is one, not many. And He is all of these attributes simultaneously. The ancients, well, they expressed their erroneous understanding of the way gods work by picking and choosing characteristics and attributes and then assigning a, a, a certain characteristic to one god and a different attribute to another, a god who creates, another god who's a god of war, another god who's a god of peace, a separate goddess of fertility, a specialized god of the harvest. 
we do no differently when we embrace the characteristics of the Lord that suits us as individuals and thus we define Him in that way. And at the same time, we deny or reject His other characteristics because they're less desirable to us. Therefore, the scriptural message is be wholehearted towards God and be seen by God as He saw David or be half-hearted towards God and be seen by God as He saw Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Aviyam, and the many others who followed them. Let's reread chapter 15 in 1 Kings, starting at verse 6. Fifteen, Chapter 15, we're going to start at verse 6. <clears throat> there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam as long as he lived. Other activities of Aviam and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. But there was war between Aviam and Jeroboam. Aviam slept with his ancestors and they buried him in the city of David and then Asa, his son, became king in his place. It was in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, that Asa began his reign over Judah. He ruled 41 years in Jerusalem. His uh, grandmother's name was Macha, the daughter of Avshalom. And Asa did what was right from the perspective of Adonai as David his ancestor had done. He rid the land of cult prostitutes, removed all the idols his ancestors had made. He also deposed Macha from her position as queen mother because she had made a disgusting image as an Asherah. Asa cut down this image of hers and burned it in the Wadi Kedron. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa was wholehearted with Adonai throughout his life. He brought into the house of Adonai all the articles his, father's, his father had consecrated, also all the things he himself had consecrated, silver, gold, utensils. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, as long as they both lived. Baasha attacked Judah. He fortified Ramah to prevent anyone's leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. And then Asa took all of the silver and gold left among the treasures of the house of Adonai and among the treasures of the royal palace, and entrusting them to his servants, King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tavrumon, the son of Hezion, king of Aram, who lived in Damasek, with this message. There's a covenant between me and you, which existed already between my father and your father. Here. I'm sending you a present of silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, so that he'll leave me alone. And Ben-Hadad did as King Asa asked. He sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, attacking Ion, Dan, Evel, bet Makah, all of Kinrot, all of the land of Naphtali. And as soon as Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and stayed in Tirzah. King Asa then issued a proclamation requiring every man in Judah, with no exception, to come and carry off the stones and the timber Baasha had used to fortify Ramah. And with them, King Asa fortified Geba of Benjamin and Mitzpah. 
The other activities of Asa, all of his power, all of his accomplishments in the cities he fortified are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. But in his old age, he suffered from a disease in his legs. And Asa slept with his ancestors. He was buried with his ancestors in the city of David, his ancestor. Then Jehoshaphat, son, uh, his son, became king in his place. It was in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, that Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began his reign over Israel. And he ruled Israel two years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, following the example of his father and the sin through which he had made Israel sin. Baasha, the son of Achiah, from the descendants of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha attacked him at Gibton, which belonged to the Philistines. For at that time Nadav and all Israel were besieging Gibton. It was in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, that Baasha killed Nadav and he became king in his place. And as soon as he became king, he killed off the entire house of Jeroboam, destroying every living soul, leaving not one survivor. This was in keeping with what Adonai had said through his servant Achiah at Shiloh. It was the punishment for the sins Jeroboam had committed and through which he had made Israel sin, thereby angering Adonai, the God of Israel. Other activities of Nadav and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, as long as they both lived. It was in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, that Baasha, the son of Achiah, began his reign over all Israel in Tirzah. And his rule lasted for 24 years. He did what was wrong from Adonai's perspective, following the example of Jeroboam and committing the sin through which he had made all Israel sin. The war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam was eventually taken up by Rehoboam's son, Avyam. And the rabbis say that even during Rehoboam's lifetime as king, it was his son, Avyam, who at times led the war effort for Judah. Now, of course, we're not to understand that there was this one long, continuous battle over all these years, but rather there was a state of hostility between the two kingdoms that on occasion broke out into open warfare. Then we're told that Aviam died and he was buried in the city of David. Aviam reigned for only three years. So he must have died at a relatively young age. Now verse 9 begins with the story of Asa, Aviam's son, who became king of Judah upon Aviam's death. He would be regarded as one of the more righteous kings of the Davidic dynasty. Now notice once again how the reigns of the kings of the two kingdoms of Judah and Israel are synchronized by the passages explaining that Asa became king of Judah at the time that Jeroboam had attained his 20th year of rulership over Israel. Asa ruled for a long time, about 41 years, and he did what was right in the Lord's eyes. In fact, what he did that was right is favorably compared to his forefather David. And this is in reference to working to eliminate idolatry from God's kingdom. Now verse 12 says that King Asa rid the land of Judah of Kadesh and removed the Gilulim, the idols that his father 
meaning Aviam, fathers rather, Aviam, Rehoboam, and Solomon had established. Now, these Kadesh are often translated into English as cult prostitutes, male prostitutes. Maybe your Bible says sodomites. But in reality, the word Kadesh literally means those who are set apart for a holy purpose. Okay, It's from the same root word as Kadosh that means holy. But you see, in this context, it's referring to some kind of immoral sexual behavior that was attached to the Jerusalem temple and apparently was actually desired and sanctioned by the priesthood as a good thing. Now exactly what it was, we can only speculate upon. Most scholars and historians think it was temple-sanctioned prostitution done for the sake of raising money for the temple treasury and for their operations. This was a pretty standard pagan typical practice in that era. Now, as you sit kind of cringing about this, don't think that this kind of mindset has passed away. Today, we see sanctioned gambling done at churches in order to raise money for ministry. We see Halloween pumpkin sales at churches, complete with salespeople in full witches' costumes, done for the purpose of raising money for the church. The point is that so much of the time in the Bible that we see the Hebrews doing evil in God's eyes, they certainly didn't see it that way. They were doing good in their own eyes. The Hebrews frequently seemed to find a way to rationalize their wrong behavior as long as they did it in Jehovah's name. Or for what they deemed was a pious purpose. I'm sorry to say, Christianity hasn't learned from this. And instead, at times, we've adopted that same attitude. We'll do what was wrong, we'll just do it in God's name. That makes it right. (laughs) It has to be the irony of ironies that institutional Christianity long ago decided it simply must avoid all things Jewish or we would be committing this terrible sin called Judaizing. However, at the same time, it was deemed to be fine and dandy to adopt blatantly pagan worship practices and observances, attach some Christian meaning to them, and then fight to the death to hang on to them and declare anyone who won't go along with it as a heretic. The Puritans who fled across the Atlantic to the New World did so primarily because they sought to escape religious persecution because they refused to observe those standard practices and observance all those observances instead choosing to follow the teachings and observances that are ordained in the Bible. So they were ostracized for it. King Asa was so zealous to do what was right before the Lord that he even disposed his, d- deposed rather his own grandmother 
Maka from her position as Gefra, which means queen mother. That had to have been a politically risky move, one that probably wasn't terribly popular inside or outside the royal court. The stated reason for her removal was that she was the patron of Ashtoreth, and so she had erected an Asherah in her honor. Asah had this disgusting thing cut down and burned in the Kidron Valley that runs along one side of the city of David. Now, Grandma couldn't have been very happy about this. <laughs> but Asah's goal was to please Jehovah, not his family. However, Asah didn't do everything right. Verse 14 explains that he wrongly left the Bamot in place. Now these Bamot, high places, are to be understood not as places of worship to pagan gods, but rather as places of worship to Jehovah. <clears throat> so what was wrong in allowing them to remain? There was to be but one authorized place of worship and sacrifice, Solomon's temple. There was to be but one place where God would put his holy name, the city of Jerusalem. But people thought that it was just the, the height of their personal piousness if they were to spend the money to build their own private high place complete with altar where their family would worship and sacrifice privately. And again, these Hebrews never thought they were doing something wrong in God's eyes. But see, that's what happens when we either stop reading God's Word or we stop taking it seriously, stop taking it for what it says, and we just kind of build our own personal religion that seems to validate whatever it is we want to do. We think if we call our activity a ministry, or we say that the Lord gave us permission to do it, or that, well, it's a sin for you, but it's not for me. We can do what the Bible says not to do, and somehow it's all okay. In fact, we tend to feel pretty good about it. That's often the case with believers today, just as it was with the biblical Hebrews and times past that we're reading about. And at the end of verse 14, we are reunited with the words that we all ought to strive to hear someday when we face the Lord as we enter eternity. He was wholehearted with the Lord. In other words, the hurdle to jump over into a state of God-declared righteousness wasn't perfection of behavior. Rather, it was the avoidance of idolatry as evidence of faithfulness and loyalty to Jehovah. And Asah showed himself faithful in that regard. As a further demonstration of his loyalty to the God of Israel, Asah brought the spoils of war that his father Aviam had won, as well as the treasures that Asah had accumulated, and he dedicated them all to the temple. But now we see another side of Asah emerge. The next several verses explain 
that Esau, king of Judah, warred with Baasha, king of Israel. And a little bit later, we're going to get a brief account of how Baasha replaced Jeroboam's dynasty as king of the northern tribes. But for the moment, his kingship is just stated as historical fact. Now, let me take a moment to set up a bit of a historical timeline for you in this regard. Now, most of this information I'm going to give you is recorded in 2 Chronicles 13, 14, and 15. After a tremendous victory over Jeroboam by Aviam, the kingdom of Judah had this extended period of relative peace that lasted for about a decade. And as it is for any national leader, war where the foreign enemy gets all of his attention because the primary issue for him is national survival. However, in peacetime, it's domestic issues that can be addressed. Thus it was that during this 10-year lull in hostilities with Israel, that Asah, king of Judah, set about uprooting all these pagan idols and Asherah and building up his fortresses and defenses and then also upgrading his army. And at the end of this peaceful period, a Cushite ruler from northern Africa named Zerah invaded Judah with this overwhelming army. But Esau cried out to the Lord. He placed his faith in Jehovah for deliverance, and Zerah was defeated. And after this battle, Esau renewed his campaign to rid Judah of idol worship. He reconsecrated the altar outside the temple. He held a great festival of thanksgiving to give the Lord credit and glory for everything that had happened. But in the 16th year, of Asa's reign, the latest king of Israel, Basha, decided to invade Judah. And he quickly gained control over the strategic city of Ramah in the territory of Benjamin that was only a couple of hours from Jerusalem and Asa's palace. It is clear that Basha's intent was to isolate Judah from any communication or traffic to the north. At the same time, he could control his own people from journeying south to the temple in Jerusalem to worship and sacrifice under the supervision of the Levites. Now with Basha almost on his doorstep, Asah panicked. So in verse 18, the king of Judah decided to purchase an ally to help him against Basha and Israel. Only a few years earlier, Asah had dedicated his father's and his own gold and silver to the temple treasury. Now, Asah uses the temple like a bank, and he plunders it. He sends the precious metals to the pagan Ben-Hadad, king of Damascus, Syria, as a bribe. It is indeed sad that the great God-given victory over the Cushite king Zerah failed to persuade Asah to once again follow the same pattern under similar circumstances by seeking the Lord for deliverance. But instead, he would try the way of the flesh that most rulers of that day would have taken. The idea was <clears throat> that Asah figured that the only way that Baasha could ultimately overrun Judah 
was with this Ben-Hadad's help. Apparently there was a treaty in place between Israel, the northern kingdom, and Damascus. So Asa didn't necessarily ask Ben-Hadad to attack his ally Israel, just merely don't help Baasha and his exploit to capture Judah. Nonetheless, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, attacked a handful of cities in the northern part of Israel, and so this had the effect of forcing Baasha to withdraw his troops from Ramah in order to reinforce his defenses against Ben-Hadad. He then retreated to Tirzah, his capital city, and he never again tried to attack Judah. Now verse 22 explains that as quickly as Baasha's men left Ramah, Asa required every able-bodied man in Judah to report to Ramah to help carry off all those cut stones, all the usable building materials that Baasha had left behind. Asa then used those building materials to fortify his own strategic defensive positions at the cities of Geba and Mitzpah. Well, this is the end of Asa's story. Except to say that in his old age, he was stricken with a debilitating disease in his feet. The sages say it was gout. Second Chronicles 16 says that he was stricken in the 39th year of his reign. And then not long afterward, <clears throat> he died. He was buried with other members of David's household in the city of David. And then he was succeeded by his son, Jehoshaphat. Well, using the standard way of synchronizing reigns, used by the editors of the book of Kings, verse 25. Now, backtracks significantly. <clears throat> Sorry. Fulfill in some blanks, and it explains that Asa was in only his second year as king over Judah when Nadav began to rule over Israel, taking over from his father Jeroboam. But he ruled only two years and was as sinful, as full of idolatry as was his father. Now remember what we talked about last week that according to biblical regnal chronology saying that he ruled for two years in no way means that he was on the throne for more or less 730 days. It merely means that he was king for parts of two calendar years. And it could have amounted to as little as a few days, although likely it was several months at the least. Well, now we find out how Basha became king of Israel. Basha was not a member of Jeroboam's dynasty. Rather, he was from the insignificant northern tribe of Issachar. And it happened that Nadav, king of Israel, was leading his troops in battle against the Philistines at a place called Gibton. And Gibton was actually a named Levitical city located in Dan's territory. But Dan had long ago abandoned that territory and moved north to the border of Lebanon, so now the Philistines were occupying it. Fulfilling the prophecy as spoken by Ahia of Shiloh, that the house of Jeroboam must be entirely terminated 
because of Jeroboam's idolatry, Baasha conspired to treacherously murder Jeroboam's son, Nadav, while he was fighting at Gibtone. And once accomplished, he set about to kill every family, every male family member that remained from Jeroboam's line so that the formal royal line would have no one left to seek revenge. Now, it must be made clear that the final few words of this chapter want one and all to know that while Basha was not innocent, he was essentially carrying out Jehovah's will in killing all of Jeroboam's family. Over and over in the Bible, we're going to see this theme of the Lord using evil men to bring about punishment over his own people. What we don't see, and this is so important, is the Lord turning good men into bad men and then using them for that purpose. Okay, let's move on to chapter 16. We're going to read all of chapter 16 now. The word of Adonai came to Yehud the son of Hanani against Baasha. I raised you up out of the dust and made you a prince over my people Israel, but you have lived in the same way as Jeroboam. You've caused my people Israel to sin, so that their sinning has made me angry. Therefore I will sweep away Baasha and his house completely. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Neviat. And if someone from the line of Baasha dies in the city, the dogs will eat him. If he dies in the countryside, the vultures will eat him. Other activities of Baasha's, his accomplishments and his power are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Baasha slept with his ancestors and Elah, his son, became king in his place. And through, uh, through the prophet Yehu, the son of Hanani, the word of Adonai was proclaimed against Baasha and his house, both because he did so much evil from Adonai's perspective, angering him with his actions, becoming like the house of Jeroboam, and because he killed Nadav. It was in the 26th year of Asa king of Judah that Elad, the son of Baasha, began his reign over all Israel in Tirzah, and he ruled for two years. His servant, Zimri, commander of half of of his chariots, plotted against him. Finally, one time when Elah was in Tirzah, drinking himself senseless in the house of Artzah, administrator of the palace in Tirzah, Zimri entered, struck him down, and killed him. This was in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. Zimri then took Elah's place as king. And at the beginning of his reign, as soon as he took over the throne, he killed off the entire house of Baasha. He left not a single male, <coughs> neither of his relatives nor of his friends. Thus Zimri eliminated all the house of Baasha in keeping with the word of Adonai spoken against Baasha through Yehu the prophet. This word had been spoken because of all of Baasha's sins and the sins of Elah his son, which they committed and with which they made Israel sin, thereby angering Adonai, the God of Israel, with their worthless idols. Other activities of Elah and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. It was in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, that Zimri ruled for seven days in Tirzah. 
At that time, the army was besieging Gibton, which belonged to the Philistines. The troops in the camp heard it said that Zimri had plotted and killed the king. Whereupon that same day there in the camp, all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel. Omri and all Israel with him withdrew from Gibton and besieged Tirzah. And when Zimri saw that the city had been captured, he went into the citadel of the royal palace and burned down the royal palace over him so that he died. And this came about because of the sins he committed in doing what was evil from Adonai's perspective in living as Jeroboam had lived and in sinning by making Israel sin. Other activities of Zimri and his conspiracy are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. And at this point, the people of Israel divided into two factions. Half the people went after Tibni, the son of Ganat, to make him king. The other half followed Omri. But the faction supporting Omri won out over that of Tibni, the son of Ginnat. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. It was in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, that Omri began his reign over Israel. He ruled for 12 years, six of them in Tirzah. He bought Mount Shamron, Samaria, from Shamer for 132 pounds of silver. And on the mountain, he built a city, which he named Shamron after Shamer, who had owned the mountain. And Omri did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, outdoing all of his predecessors in wickedness. For he lived entirely in the manner of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, committing the sins with which he made Israel sin, thereby angering Adonai, the God of Israel, with their worthless idols. Other activities of Omri and the power he demonstrated are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Then Omri slept with his ancestors, and he was buried in Shomron, and Ahav, his son, became king in his place. It was in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that Ahav, the son of Omri, began his rule over Israel. And Ahav, the son of Omri, ruled 22 years over Israel in Shomron. And Ahav, the son of Omri, did what was evil, from Adonai's perspective, outdoing all of his predecessors. But then as if it had been a trifling thing for him to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, he took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Etbal, king of the Sidonim. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Shomron. Ahav also set up an Asherah. Indeed, Ahav did more to anger Adonai, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel preceding him. It was during his time that Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of his firstborn son, Avaram, and erected its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Skuv. This was in keeping with the word of Adonai spoken through Joshua the son of Nun. <clears throat> Needless to say, Basha was a complete failure as a king. So the Lord set about to punish him for his wickedness. God sent the prophet Yahu, who was the son of another prophet named Hanani, to bring the bad news to Basha. The very same curse that the Lord had laid upon Jeroboam would now happen to Basha. 
And we're going to see this same prophet, Yehu, who criticized Basha, well, he'd also criticize the new king of the southern kingdom, Jehoshaphat. And in verse 2, the Lord, through Yehu, tells Basha that rather than realize that it was wholly impossible for a man who was not of aristocratic blood, who came from such common stock of a small tribe, Issachar, to rise up and become king over so formidable a people as the ten northern tribes. Well, this couldn't have happened unless the Lord God made it happen. And so, rather than Basha understanding that he was only an instrument to bring about God's wrathful prophecy upon the house of Jeroboam, and instead of responding by drawing near to God and serving him, Basha became the most idolatrous and evil king over Israel to that point in history. Thus the Lord says he's going to completely wipe out Basha's line, just as Basha completely wiped out Jeroboam's line. Therefore, there'll be no dynasty of Basha. Now, I think it might be a good time to remark about something that some of you may already be puzzling about. Seems there was something very strange in the nature and character of the kings of Israel in that they were consciously well aware of God overthrowing the previous Israelite kings due to their perverse worship of golden calves and other gods and idols because each successive new king had a direct hand in ending the reign of the previous regime. It was made clear to them by God's prophets in advance that the reason that the Lord was allowing them to even commit murder of the sitting king was in order to bring about prophetic fulfillment of God's judgment on that evil king for his idolatry. And yet, these new kings responded by worshipping the same false gods, same golden calves, same Asherah, that the kings they had just deposed were worshipping. It's utterly irrational. But it has that same aura of determined self-destruction that the true master of these evil kings, Satan, seems to have. Satan knows. He knows that his ultimate destiny is destruction in the lake of fire. He knows this. He knows he's going to lose his ages-long battle with God. So why doesn't he repent? Why doesn't he accept the forgiveness that Messiah offers and end this suicidal war that he can't win? You know, we could ask that question of each of these successive generations of Israel's kings. We could ask some of our present world's worst homicidal despots. Perhaps we could ask it of some of our closest family members, some of our dearest friends. Why do they think they can defeat God? Why do they think 
that they will be the first ones to do evil in God's eyes and escape His punishment and wrath. It can only be a spiritual blindness that has deprived one and all of their senses. But why do we, as God's followers of all people, think that we can disobey Him and suffer no consequences? Why do we think that for us, our sins and trespasses will arouse little more than a grandfatherly wink and chuckle from God Almighty? Why do we think we can forsake Jehovah's laws and commandments, His festivals and His ordained observances, and replace them with observances and doctrines of our own creation, and that He'll bless it, even congratulate us for it? Why do we think we can disagree with or overturn His prophetic decree that Israel will once again be His chosen people and His precious treasure, that they will be restored and returned to their own land that He promised them, and that anyone who tries to harm His people will be themselves harmed. It's because of that same kind of irrational spiritual blindness that infected this long list of Israel's wicked kings and the source of that irrational blindness is also the same one as theirs was. The evil one. 